Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. Now today, we are graced with one of my friends in the movement and at the same time, somebody who has had truly prolific influence over the last, I would say like the last seven, maybe seven to 10 years, like People are really, I don't know, I'm beginning to hear her voice all the play, all over the place and also recommend her everywhere. But she is beginning to be recognized as a significant womanist voice um, in uh, the Christian space. And so Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes is a theologian and y'all get this, and she's a clinical psychologist. Hello. Who can say that? Who's actually done all of that work? And she's an author, the author of Too Heavy a Yoke. I bring the voices of my people, which I had the great honor of um, contributing the forward for. And her newest work, a 49-day devotional titled Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves. (laughs) I just love that. I love that title. So I invited Dr. Walker Barnes to speak with us today because folk are tired. I mean, bone tired for multiple reasons. I mean, the gig economy has folks working two and three jobs while climate change has folks running from forest fires while dodging tornadoes, trying to breathe when you're taking your dog for a walk in the middle of the tornado and then trying to survive record-breaking heat all in the middle of taking your dog for a walk and not being able to breathe. And so people of color, women, LGBTQ people, um, that whole community, and especially trans women are in particular, are increasingly having to survive legislated attacks against our very personhood. So folk are tired. So we need some sacred self-care. Can somebody say with me, sacred self-care? Sacred self-care, okay? (laughs) So... We are going to get some some instruction on how we do that today. And I have to say, I've, I was reading through this and just feeling really grateful for the work that Dr. Walker Barnes has put into this book, because it's not actually just a devotional. I think some people have given up on devotionals. They don't they don't do them. Others, actually, it, it is their bread and butter. It is the thing. Well, I just want to encourage everybody to go out, get this book, because this is one of those books that is not just a you know, nice thoughts for each day. It's literally instruction on how to do the Jesus walk in a way that doesn't kill you, right? So in a way that actually brings life, not death. So let's dive in. We would love to hear your thoughts. So you can um, uh, thread me. I almost said the the dreaded T word, but I'm not doing that anymore. Um, the, you can thread me or insta me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at freedomroad.us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. So Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, welcome to Freedom Road. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here um, to be talking with you. I always enjoy our conversation, so I'm excited about this one. Ditto. I mean, seriously, whenever we've talked, first of all, 
<laughs> when we talk, it gets real, real quick. And what I really love about you, Shaniqua, is that you are just like, you are bone honest. Like you just, you do not hold back and you are not about like saving anybody's face, not yours or anybody else's. <laughs> and, and so I know that the conversation we're going to have today is going to be from a very honest place. And, you know, and I welcome that. And I ask you, and I, not only do I welcome it, we need that. We really need that right now. Um, so can I ask you just to start with your faith journey? Just tell us a little bit about like, how did you, how did you come to this Jesus walk? And the reason why I start there is that every single time we always start there. Cause I want folks to have a little sense of, of who you are before we dive into like the meat of the, yeah. of the combo. Yeah, I love that. So I, um, I grew up in a very faith filled family, um, to this day, my great grandfather was, a Methodist pastor mm. on my maternal side. And then on my paternal side, I had a lot of uh, several Baptists. My great-grandfather was a Baptist pastor, right? Oh, and so, uh, yeah. And so I came through this um, from a family that was steeped in the faith. I always tell people, I don't remember a time where I didn't believe because I went to, to church from a very early age. My, my, my faith was, um, really shepherded by my grandparents. I would say my my maternal grandmother, um, I, I would really see as the person, uh, she was to me what um, Timothy's grandmother was to, to him, right? Mm. The one who really nurtured me in the faith, who often picked me up on Sunday mornings and took me to church and Sunday school. Um, and then our, our home, um, was was steeped in the faith. So I grew up in a Baptist church here in Atlanta, um, a Black Baptist church. And the church itself, I would describe as a movement church. Um, my pastor was um, what we would call a race man, right? He was one yes. that came of age before, you know, was coming of age right around the civil rights movement, was an active participant in the movement. We were hearing about racial justice issues in, in church on a regular basis. We talked about race. We talked about social issues. So growing up, I thought the two were intertwined for everybody. I thought being a Christian meant um, being engaged in the world, caring for the poor, caring for the marginalized. I thought it all went together. Um, mm -hmm. The one thing my church did not include was gender. <laughs> Right. Oh, and so, interesting. Right. Yeah. And so we had this real strong race consciousness. Mm. And so I kind of grew up developing that as a teenager, this sort of racial consciousness. And only later on did I begin to kind of layer these other aspects of it. Um, but that is really how it started. I have been um, I'm, a, I'm a seeker, I think, in, in a different way. Um, I believe God is in. Um, no, no one denomination or tradition has a monopoly on God. And so my, my walk has led me from that Black Baptist church um, to sort of evangelical social justice spaces, mm -hmm. uh, to predominantly white mainline spaces. Um, mm -hmm. I really have, have grown, I think, tremendously from having a foot in, in a lot of spaces. And I think that's part of who I am is, you know, the psychologist and theologian, right? The academic and the practitioner is that I'm always wanting to glean from a lot of people. So that's sort of the faith journey in a nutshell. It's funny because I actually think that's part of the reason why we connect, right? Like I think that um, early on, I would say probably around 1999, I had an experience, a prayer experience in the midst of 
being in a, a mission agency that that focused on college campuses, and it was in a black prayer service. And everybody surrounded me and started praying for me. And I was like, what? Like, what are they doing? And I freaked out. Um, but in the midst of that, what happened was I realized that I didn't love myself. So, you know, here, you this book is about sacred self-care. Yes. And I had this experience probably about 20 years ago, 24 years ago, where I realized I don't love myself. And it's not that I just don't love myself. I don't agree that God made me well. I don't agree because you know, I wanted to be more black, right? I was like, why am I not? Why was I not brought up? I was not brought up in the black church. I was not brought up in church at all, right? My family um, has all these different strains to it. I had lived in lots of different, um, like corners of, of different, different communities in our, in our, in our demography. And so I wanted to be more immersed. And I think that God has taken you it seems on a really diverse path that I love hearing you say actually has strengthened or or given you a very unique perspective that is valuable to the world right now. That's what I found in that prayer time. God said to me, there's method to the madness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, I love it. My, um, you know, my musical traditions in church come from a wide variety of places. And, and I find that if I am, if I stay in one particular um, environment for too long, my spirit starts longing for something, right? It's like, yeah, this is great and, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so for me, you know, I laugh that I can go from wanting to sing kind of traditional Black hymn, right? To then I think about the hymnals, the Methodist hymnal, to then I want Hillsong, right? Like, you know, even with all the problem, I'm like, okay, and I, I need a little bit of oceans now, like just just a little bit, oh, right? Wow, yeah, that's true. That song gets me every single time. Almost against my will, quite honestly. <laughs> On the one hand, I'm like, oh, this again. And then I'm like, yes, God. Wow. Well, and you know- so yeah, that's and 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 you know, so trying to bring all of that together. And you're so right. We can grow, we can that can make us think we're not enough, right? Where because we don't quite fit when we're that diverse in every environment, it feels like. Well, am I enough black church? Like right. I know these hymns and love them, but oh, that hymn they're singing. I don't know that one. Right. Right. Or am it, I enough evangelical or am I enough, you know, any you know, you, yes. you never feel like you're enough, right? Because you actually exactly. are so diverse in your very makeup. Yes. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I actually have another another piece of diversity for you is just your bio. I mean, that you are both a clinical psychologist and a womanist theologian. Yeah. I mean, how did that happen? What what came first and, and how did the other one come along? Yeah. So I think in this, I think in some ways it goes back to this, this church environment, um, this church that did not believe in women in ministry, hmm. but at the same time was very um, racially conscious. And so when I went to college, I think I actually first experienced um, my call to ministry the summer before my freshman year. Mm-hmm. And it was doing, it was doing outreach community service work. And I knew then that God had a call on my life. I expressed it in that way. I didn't imagine it could be the church. Um, As a matter of fact, my freshman roommate was planning to major in religion and um, a young white woman. And I remember when she said that, I said, and what are you doing that for? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Let me say, I know what you're talking about. 
you know, I grew up, I'm just, okay. So I guess there's like a lot of connection here. Yeah. I grew up, um, my faith was planted in the context of a UMC church and also young life. Um, but then when I got to college, uh, you know, it was campus crusade and they are not about women leadership unless there are no men around. Right. So I actually did lead for a while and certain things, but then when men came, I was told I have to step down and I internalized that. So the very first yeah. time I ever heard a woman preach, I literally said, this is heresy. Wow. <laughs> right. Isn't that like, and it's just, yeah. it's internalized. It is. It is. And so, mm -hmm. Um, so because that wasn't an option, I knew God wanted me to do something. I knew it, it, it was about um, racism, right? That it had to do with the wounds of racism. And so I said, well, how can I channel this? What do I do? And so I chose psychology. Mm. Um, so as an undergraduate, I double majored in psychology and African and African-American studies. Mm. And and then um, and, and that was because I started looking at what are, what are the career paths I could take? And I said, uh, 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 I can get a doctorate in psychology and I can focus on African-American families. And so that it was about me trying to find a way to channel this call. And then I ended up, you know, so pursuing that I'm in my first job. But, but Shaniqua, this, I'm sorry. Yeah. Can, I'm sorry. Can you go back very quickly to yeah. when she said that she was going to, she was going to work in the church and you said, why would you want to do that? Or, or why that was it about you? Cause I thought you were saying that it was about, you know, you didn't think women could, could lead. Is that, yeah. did I get that wrong? That's absolutely right. It's oh. absolutely right. And, and, and my roommate, um, she was her, her mother was an Episcopal pastor. And I still thought, okay, so maybe white women in the Episcopal, right? So then it still wasn't about me. It was so about, about yeah, because being a Southerner, I was like, I don't need a boat Episcopalians. Anyway, oh. that sounds weird, right? That's <laughs> deep. That's so deep. Yeah. So I kept oh. finding ways to like, you're sort of this anomaly. You're this weird person, right? Mm -hmm. I know God wants me to do something. I got to figure out another way to do it. And so really didn't take a single religion class as an undergrad, right? Like just moved away from that altogether. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and threw myself into psychology and into to clinical psychology. Just really thought, where can I do this work? And um, yeah, began to do that work. Got my first job after finishing my doctorate. And um, I was working at um, University of Florida and I I was in, um, I was a clinical professor. So mostly doing clinical work and training graduate students. Mm -hmm. And this woman came in and she had an issue that I realized was spiritual. And I was stumped because mm -hmm. I didn't know how to help her. I mm -hmm. didn't know how to help her. And um and I really, I tried everything I knew from psychology. I mean, I was literally running into my office, taking every every diagnostic instrument. My office looked like a tornado hit it afterwards because I was like, no, there's a psychological problem. There's a cycle. And, and at, I thought, oh my, this is really spiritual. What do I do? Wow. And I realized my training hadn't prepared me for it. And I didn't know how to integrate the language of my faith and my profession. And I thought, so what I ended up telling her, this woman, and I called her husband in and I said, I think you two need to go home and pray. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't even want to pray with them. I was scared to pray with them, Lisa, because I thought, how am I going to write up my note? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, isn't that like, is that allowed? Like, you know, all those, all those questions come up. 
Right. Wow. I said, you know, I can't like nobody could know that I did this with them. Right. And so I just said, you two need to go home and pray. Right. Wow. And that um, that case just kept kept stirring in my mind for the next couple of years as I left that and went on to a tenure track kind of academic position I kept going back to that Mm. and thinking about pastors who were helping people like that and how pastors might come at it from a completely different end right and not see any of the psychological issues at play Mm. and so I began to think about I really want to train pastors to provide better care for people and so I began to, to do these other things. And before you know it, I'm in seminary, right? Um, <laughs> and um, I actually won, I had been working with my church on issues of self-care with women. And it came out of my own journey. So this book I say is like, it's the culmination of a 20 plus year self-care journey yeah. where um, I'm, one, I'm dealing with the stress of this profession, trying to figure out what it means to be a young Black woman in a very hostile academic environment and how do I thrive. And I started um, trying to take care of myself better Mm -hmm. and then realize, oh, wait, this is having a real impact on my health and well-being. Mm -hmm. And so then finally, these these threads of mine began coming together because I started moving into the church and saying, oh, this is how I can take my profession in into the church and from there ended up really finally clearly hearing my call to ministry Mm -hmm. and deciding that the work that I needed to do I needed further training right and so I left my tenure track position so that I could go back to school and go to seminary and um all the wow (laughs) I mean you get one PhD only to get another PhD and a whole other thing Who does that? (laughs) And I only have one PhD, right? So I have one PhD, but I have two master's degrees. I did consider, at one point I was considering, um, and it was womanist theologians who told me that I did not need a second doctorate. Okay, okay. Well, you got the nod. Okay. Yes, (laughs) yes. Womanist theologians, they were like, you do not need a second doctorate. You've done the work. You just need to hone your information sources. So so it was all the while, it was this theme of self-care. And, and and so going to seminary helped me to start thinking about it theologically, right? Like, yeah, what does it mean when I'm talking about self-care? It's actually different than the way I had been thinking about it before. Um, mm-hmm. So this book is trying to pull that together. It's trying to weave together the theology and the psychology, because psychology is so practical. It's, yeah. and how does this affect people's lives, right? So it's not kind of pie in the sky theology. It always has to be grounded because I tend to think in terms of treatment plans and outcomes and um, I still think in those ways. And so I'm always thinking, okay, how, how do I distill this in ways that people can take it? Where's the resistance and how do we make this helpful to people? See, that is what I appreciate about what you have done. And we're going to talk more. I'm going to, you know, brag on your book a little bit in a little bit in a little bit. But before I brag, let me just say it is a very rare gift to have a book by an actual clinical psychologist that also has such deep knowledge about womanist theology and understandings of the intersections between race and gender and class and all the things, sexuality, everything. Um, and especially in today's world, we just really need that. So, I mean, I, my, my next question is like, what, what do you mean by sacred self-care as opposed to just self-care and why now? 
Yeah. So self-care has really become this sort of commodified, commercialized concept, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So now you can see commercials that tell you, you know, if you self-care is about buying a particular product, right? And as I kept trying to teach people about self-care, I was always running into this, is this selfish Right. And women especially are always asking the question, isn't this selfish? Um, Activists. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Before before you go forward, I think some people are going to need to have a distinct, they're going to need you to break that down. Why womanist as opposed to, because I, well, let me just say, I, I learned for the first time recently that the difference, a key difference between feminists and womanists is that feminists do think more about the self. I mean, the, the goal is to is to go forward as the self, but a womanist is really about moving the entire community forward. It's more yes. collective. Is yes. that right? Yes. So, and that's really, yeah. um, uh, and that's really a lot of black women. And the, the term womanist was term was coined by Alice Walker and part, and she talks about we're committed to the survival of all people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and she used, you know, male and female, but she also used across the racial spectrum. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that even though we ground our um, perspective in the stories of black women, we're, we're using black women's lives as our our center. The idea is that if we focus on black women, because black women are caregivers for so many people and we always bring our whole networks with us, that we're actually then caring for everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's this way of being communal care. So sacred self-care is very womanist because it's not just about me and myself. Right. Wow. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. It's that's about really the good. people I'm in relationship with. Right. And yeah. it's understanding that those relationships and those people are actually part of my self-care because I'm created to be in community and in relationship with other people. So that's the, that's, I think that is the fundamental what to what distinguishes this from other ways that people talk about self-care. That's so good. And can I just say like, so oh, I feel like I want to jump to the end when I'm like recommending this book to everybody and how they should be using it. But I'll just, I'll give you a little forecast, a foretaste here. I think every church should be using this book. <laughs> Well, thank you. As a discipleship tool, I'm very serious. And now that I, it's very clear, the sacred piece being collective, this is about the community. Um, it's about um, understanding self-care in the context of community and in the context of the network of relationships. Um, what, a, what a beautiful, um, I don't even know if it's just an addition. It might be a corrective, quite honestly, from the typical um, self-care books that we typically use in our discipleship, you know, yeah. um, when we talk about, um, Sabbath or when we talk about prayer, or we talk about, we talk about all these things they've been, they've been sketched for us by white men usually. Yeah. Um, and as such, or even white women, and they, they tend to, as such, then they tend to be very individualistic in yeah. their scope. It's about me and how yes. I get, how I care for myself. But so I can't wait to dive in and actually figure, find out from you like, okay, so how is this different with the, with the community? And why now? Why, why now? Why now? Because I think, um, I think so many of us are hurting and I think the, the stresses of our lives, um, especially in a lot of activist spaces and a lot of um, congregational leadership spaces, right, that we're seeing burnout at 
these these massive levels, right? We're seeing high levels of trauma. And so I think we just need to do something different, mm. right? And there, it, it seems like, the, and, and the earth, the earth is, is literally suffering under the weight of our busyness and of our always trying to achieve more and um, consume more, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a way in which if we could care for ourselves, we could care for the earth better too, right? If we rest, the earth gets to rest, right? That like in the real sense of Sabbath, right? And Shalom, right? If we slow down, right? Then the earth gets to breathe a little bit more as well. And so I think there's a, that we are at a, at a, a real crossroads, I think in American history, in human history, where we need to do something different um, and the different can't be becoming more individualistic. It has to be in some way learning to focus, like not trying to run from ourselves, but learning to focus, but in this way that is very much tied into who has God created us to be. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. There is a truth that can heal us if we let it. This is a lyric from the epic new anthem, Fly, aka Fortune Song. I co-produced Fly with Andre Henry, who also performed it, and I co-wrote it with Common Hymnals, Philip Jobert, and Vincent Charlo. Inspired by my book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World, and How to Repair It All, Fly is a clarion call to truth-telling and repair in an age when state governments are legislating the suppression and twisting of history. Fly offers us a way forward, daring us to dream of the healing that truth can bring if we let it. Mixed and mastered by Jay Kale, I am so excited to share Fly with you. So without further ado, here is Fly, aka Fortune's Song. There is a lie that stole the daughters from their mother's arms, the sons from out beneath their father's shade. There was a lie that drove the ships upon the waters, built the walls around the life we live today. When words of life are tools of death to bind up dignity, we think that what we've come to know is all that this could be.
There is a truth that can heal us if we let it. Reparation to restore and make it right. So Shaniqua, what do you think gets in the way of us taking care of ourselves the most? I think in a lot of ways. So so I will say, I, I do really frame this from the perspective of women and girls, right? People mm-hmm. who are socialized um, and as, as girls and as women, that for us in particular, um, we are conditioned from a very early age to be other focused. And I actually think boys and men are also socialized, but it's in a different way, right? Boys and men are socialized to think not themselves, but the external world and how am I going to conquer the external world, right? Girls and women are socialized not for ourselves, but how am I going to take care of the other people, especially the male figures as they conquer the external world? Wow. And And you can layer then other aspects of our identity onto that. So, you know, some of us that gets heightened because of race, because of sexuality, because of class, because of immigration status, right? There are all these different ways that we learn not to think about who we are Hmm. and um, not to focus on our bodies and our body's needs, right? Instead, especially as Christians, we have this really sort of negative relationship with our bodies. We think of our bodies as bad, yes. right? As sinful, the flesh, right? And so, so much of our, our, our discipleship is oriented towards trying to transcend the body. So we ignore the body. We suppress the body and repress the body, right? But we Girl, are yes. embodied, <laughs> right? God yes. doesn't create us without bodies. Like they, none of us are like disembodied spirits just float. We are bodies. Our humanly life is experienced mm-hmm. in the body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's no, not suppress the body, but actually learn to pay attention to this body. What What is, what am I, because this is how I experience God. This is how I experience other people is through the body. So then how do I learn to pay attention to my body and what it's saying? Um, and of course, this comes out of my own health journey as somebody who's dealt with chronic illness and cancer for the past 20 years, different chronic illnesses, and I'm two-time um, breast cancer survivor, right? Wow. And a lot of this, I think, was because being a good student, and a good girl, right? a good Southern girl, a mm. good Christian, I really learned, don't pay attention to that urge. Don't pay attention. Like, you know, you get a PhD by learning to sit your butt in the seat and work for long periods of time. And so what if I'm feeling a little pain right there because maybe I need to get up, ignore that, right? So what if I need to go eat something healthy or I need to ex- ignore that? I got to get the work done, right? And so- wow. Learning how to come back and be whole for me is about embodiment. Uh, But again, recognizing that my body 
was not created in a vacuum. It's created to, to be in relationship with other bodies. It's created to be in relationship with the earth, hmm. right? And so how then do I come back into the body that God created and gave me and then honor that body as this is the first gift, the first and best gift that I've ever been given by God, right? How yes. do I care for that? You know, I, I'm really, I've, I'm just really struck by this. Um, I'm remembering a conversation I had with, um, with Ruby sales and, uh, about, about fortune actually. And she, cause I had in my first chapter, maybe it was the introduction I had talked about, you know, the, the subjugation of black bodies. And I, I mentioned, I had that phrase several times in the book and she said, Lisa, why are you always focused on the bodies and not like the whole person? And I think that part of the, I never had an answer for that before, but as I'm listening to you, I think it was because of my evangelical upbringing in the faith. Like I came to faith in an evangelical um, context at 14 years old, which is very impressionable, right? And then so all the way through high school, all the way through college, all the way through my young adult years and pretty much most of my, actually all of my thirties as well, like I was very, very deep into white evangelical world. And in that world, Paul is the king, right? Yes. <laughs> and king, and Paul is very much shaped by his Roman, like Greco-Roman Western cultural thought, which is quite ironic because he's Hebrew. He's actually, you know, a Jewish person, but um, his, so his, his home culture is Hebrew, but he's very much Roman by culture. And and that means that he's very dualistic. Yes. Hello. Yes. So he has he has divided the body and the soul. And I never really understood why, like, what's bad about that? What is, and how could that be bad? Paul does it in the scripture. I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that Paul divides the body and the soul? And so I know I'm kind of going all over the place here, but here's here's where I'm going with this. I realized a few years back, maybe about two or three years ago, in the middle of the pandemic, that I had been living as if I had no body. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like I was dragging my body behind me to all the different speaking events and, you know, marches and jail and all that. I mean, I was living as if I had no body. And then I was surprised when my body started breaking down on me, you know, and like I start can't get out of literally it hurt to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And then I found out that I was severely vitamin D deficient, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And so I think that if Paul had been a little healthier, maybe I would have been too. Yeah. <laughs> how yeah. do you, how do you deal with Paul? How do you deal with that? Yeah. I, you know, I think even the way you just framed Paul as being this, this Hebrew who is living under this Greco-Roman colonization, right? Mm. And it makes me think of it and, you know, inter like, oh, that's internalized oppression, right? Yes. It's when you take on the oppressive worldview as your own. And I wow. think that in some way is part of what we're seeing with, with Paul at, at times, Mm -hmm. And to me, there are other scriptural stories. So I'm always, you know, okay, so yes, there's this one part, but is there something else in scripture? For me, the incarnation is another way of thinking about the body, right? Wow, when I went to seminary, good. yeah, when I went to good. seminary, I, like a lot of people, I kind of thought of Jesus as half man, half God, 
right? And, and what you could do in scripture is you could kind of pinpoint, okay, that's his human side talking. Okay, no, that's his divine side talking. And I think within the first, I don't know, week of church history and theology, we learn that's not the way to think of this, mm-hmm. right? Jesus is one unitary being. There is no division between the humanity and the divinity of Christ, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that gives us a powerful And, you know, way of thinking this kind of corrective to this dualism is thinking, no, Jesus at all times in heavenly existence was embodied, Mm -hmm. right? Under the earthly existence was embodied the entire time, right? The, The disciples experienced him in the body. He experienced life as a human being in the body. Yeah. Could have done it the other way, but did it in the body, right? And and Jesus is so attentive to the needs of, of the body, right? The miracles, a lot of the miracles are about what? The body. It's feeding people, healing people, right? Mm-hmm. He was so concerned with our bodily existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for us to recognize that we also can be concerned with mm-hmm. our, our bodily existence, right? The way our bodies work it's how we're designed to work, right? Like our bodies are designed to need water. That is part of God's intention for our bodies, right? This, this thing, vitamin D, the fact that the sun gives us vitamin D. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> and it's from the fact that we are, at least I am working indoors most of the time, not getting out and getting sun. In okay. fact, I don't know. Well, I know that part of it for people of African descent has to do with the the amount of melanin in our skin that kind of wards off the vitamin D, right? Like, right. so we have to get more sun in order to have more of it from the sun. Yeah. Um, but then we end up not getting as much because we are so such work horses. Yes. I've been trained to be such work horses. Yes. And we're women. so disconnected from nature, right? Mm-hmm. So again, um, when, when I think about the complexity of the human body. I it, I am always just brought to a point of awe and wonder and worship, right? Like the 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 elimination system, right? This this the intricacy where God thought you're going to take things in, you need to get stuff out, right? <laughs> Think about that. That's true. Our bodies are miracles. Right? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So to inst- so we don't need to kind of distance ourselves from that. Instead, appreciate the miracle, mm-hmm. right? Like to appreciate the miracle, and and again those connections, right? Um, the fact that touch, loving touch, releases endorphins for us, right? Like that. Again, we we are designed to be in relationship. Right. We are designed literally to need it. Um, and we know that if we don't get good relationships, if we don't get there, are all these negative consequences mm-hmm. that that happen from not tending to to the body. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think those are ways in which we can begin to think differently uh, about the body. Yeah. So I really love how you've structured this book. Um, you know, you move from an introduction to the fundamentals of sacred self-care into several deep dives on particular aspects of sacred self-care. Um, I love that you take a week long dive, right. On each of these different aspects, uh, boundaries. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I studied boundaries for the very first time in the 1990s, it was such a new concept in my circles. I think for many people, 
And, and it, it, it was really foundational. It became foundational to what it looks like and what it, what is necessary to have a healthy faith life. Right. So another week you're, you're doing a deep dive on caring for our emotional selves and a whole nother week it's on caring for our minds. And I just, it struck me, this is all really essential stuff. I mean, this is not, this is not actually a fluff devotional. Actually, you've structured it like a devotional, but you what I see, I see you. <laughs> I see you, Dr. Sneekwa. You are actually discipling the next generation. That's what you're doing here. And you're giving them and like the operating instructions on how to do the Christian faith in a way that is healthy and leads yeah. to flourishing. So yeah. I, I want to know when did you kind of realize that this book was needed? You know, like when did you realize that the next generations need this book? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I say that this book is really a primer on self-care that's just written in a devotional format. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and this started um, really as an exercise on social media that I was doing in 2021. I was actually working on another book at this time, at the time, it was sort of a follow-up to, I bring the voices of my people. It it was looking Mm -hmm. at the stress of racial justice work and how, how we cope with the stress of course, wow. this is in the midst of the pandemic, right? The The pandemic has happened and um, it was around February, 2021. We're approaching Lent. I'm starting to give, give thought to what am I going to give up this year? And I think, I mean, well, I've given up a lot already, right? Like we've all collectively given up a lot this year. And yeah. I began to realize that another practice that I've often used for, for Lent is taking on something instead of giving up. Mm-hmm. And I thought this, this seems like another year where I think I need to take on, where I need to take on something that's nurturing and that's life-giving rather than giving up something as, as my discipline. And as I began to kind of pay attention to other people talking about this, I thought maybe I should invite people into my practice, right? Like, let me find a way to invite people into what I'm doing. So I started uh, a Instagram challenge on, on you know, self-care. It was a Lenten self-care challenge that I did in 2021. And I began to say, let me just think about how I would teach self-care to, to people, right? And each, each week, we're just going to focus on a different thing. And about halfway through the challenge, um, uh, a co- another colleague in ministry, um, a sister, um, she reached out to me. She said, you know, this is a book, right? <laughs> and wow. I thought, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. And I was, I also found that the writing aspect of it was really challenging for me, right? Because Instagram, you only get so many characters, That's right. And so for me, it was, how do I give substance, right? How do I give substance in this finite amount of characters each day? And I really began to enjoy that element of of the writing, right? Um, And learning, yeah, so so break it down, get out of your way, get rid of all the, you know, some days I write these long things and I'm like, I got to get rid of half of this. How do I get to the point? And how do I break down? Some of these concepts are more complex. How do I break that down? And then also, again, this is the therapist in me. What's the resistance, right? People often know what they should do, right? They are, we, A lot of us know. If you yeah. ask people, what does it mean to be healthy? We can rattle off the right things. Mm-hmm. The issue is the resistance, 
So the question then is, why don't we do those things? That's good. And so I begin to frame this around what gets in our way. We don't have good boundaries, right? Right, right. We think our emotions are the enemy of our logic. And so we want to repress those just like we want to repress the body, mm-hmm. right? Um, we don't know how to p- cultivate attentiveness to ourselves. So that's the mindfulness part of it, right? That, so I begin to just really f- say, I'm going to focus the book on not so much, this is what it means to be healthy, but these are the hurdles we have to get over in order to practice the self-care that we need. I love that. I really love that. What was the hardest section for you to write? Well, the hardest section for me to write. um, Was it boundaries? Was it the emotional life or the mind? Um, You know, or was it the introduction? You know, I think it was actually in a lot of ways. It was that first part about framing self-care. And I think that's when I began to realize that this is discipleship, right? Um, And that part of the writing was, and I think in some ways still is intimidating because I realized that what I was doing in writing about self-care and trying to, you know, that first week is really sort of giving a theology of Mm -hmm. Mm self-care. And in some ways me thinking, but who am I to do this? (laughs) I feel that every single time I sit down to write a book, I mean, I literally get to the first page and it's blank and I'm going, what was I thinking? (laughs) Right. Like I'm not a systematic theologian. Like who am I (laughs) to sit and say, and yeah. And so that was hard. And then the other part that you are a theologian, I just want to (laughs) who are you? You are Shaniqua Walker Barnes who has lived some life and done your homework. And that's who you are to be able to speak into this. I'm just saying. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, oh, the, the scriptures and the hymns were were very difficult because I wanted this. So when I did the original challenge, it didn't, it didn't have explicit scripture, right? Every day it was just hear my thoughts on these topics. But for the book, I really did want to ground it in, in scripture. I wanted mm-hmm. to connect it. I wanted to feel like a devotional and connect it to our um, Christian tradition more explicitly. So good. And the reality is scripture doesn't talk about self-care a whole lot. Like that term isn't a scriptural term, right? right? And some of the things I'm talking about here, well, they're not explicitly mentioned in scripture. So for me to find what are ways that scripture can speak to self-care and speak to these topics, and then what resources do we have in the Christian tradition, in our hymnals, that also can bolster the teachings that I'm trying to to um, to communicate here. And so that was that probably was one of the the hardest things, but so fulfilling for me too. It forced me to look at scripture in different ways, to be more imaginative, more creative, um, and really to do a deep dive, just to start reading and searching and comparing. And I mean, I was I was in some of those old commentaries and Strong's, my Strong's concordance got used more for this. Oh my <laughs> that, gosh. Yes. Oh my I was pulling back those old, like the first, the first reference tools I bought, right? On the oh, Bible. Yes. Like, oh, okay, I got to go back to the old school stuff for this. We are <laughs> doing some study here. This is yes. like, we're, we're diving in. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Yeah. So what was the most live chapter for you to write? Like live in terms of, as you were writing, God's working it out in your own life. 
Oh, goodness. Is there a particular chapter? It's like all of them. <laughs> all of them, right? I think, you know, every time I write something, Lisa, I feel like God uses my own life as an object lesson, right? And, and God and I have conversations about this because I really don't like it. Uh, <laughs> it just feels so vulnerable, right? again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think for me, the part around um, boundaries in a lot of ways yes. still, even mm-hmm. though it's something that I work on, mm-hmm. but to really, because, you know, the, the tricky thing about boundaries is it's not a um, boundaries are good, boundaries are bad, right? They're not by themselves inherently good or bad. There's a real nuance and art to getting good boundaries. So for me to try to, yes, for me to try to articulate, it's not just put up walls. That's not what we mean with boundaries, but really what is a good, what is a good boundary, right? Mm -hmm. And how do I, how do I express that? But then also practicing that, that turns out to be one of the most difficult things Mm -hmm. over and over again that I have realized, right? Like you don't just, you don't um, do a boundary once, right? Oh, and a lot of that just came from me practicing and then reflecting on practice, right? Like I just put up a boundary of that person. Why did I have to do it again? And again, oh, <laughs> I mean, like, okay, so it, it's not just do it one time. It's I have to do it m- multiple times. You got to own it. You, you have to own it. own it. Yeah. And so I think for me to pay attention to that process as it was happening in my own life and then try to write about it was one of the hardest things. Mm, I feel that. Yeah. Okay. Last question of this segment. So which chapter do you think speaks most to the needs of Gen Xers right now? That's people like, are you a Gen Xer or are you millennial? I'm a Gen Xer. Okay. So me too. We're Gen Xers. You know, we are the breakfast club (laughs) generation, uh, the reality bites generation, hip hop generation, mind you. Um, but what, what, which chapter do you think would speak most to us? And then I'm going to ask you about millennials and Gen Zers separately. You know, maybe, maybe the self-compassion part, the chapter, mm. that section, um, mm. because I think Gen Xers tend to be very pragmatic in a lot of ways. Right. Yep. yep. Um, And I often think of us as we are the generation who experienced both the the hope and the failure of prior movements. You are, you are messing now. What? (laughs) Wow. That is so true. You know, can I, can I just, so hold that thought. I just want to add this one thing and then ask you to move that forward. The boomers before us straddled two worlds, right? The boomers before us began their childhood in the world where segregation was legislated and the norm. Yeah. And then they moved from their childhood into their adulthood in a post-segregated world, which is, can you imagine that? Like that's their experience of the world. They also experienced this, this like one foot over here and one foot over there, but I never thought of Xers as yes. doing that in some yeah. way too. So now move forward with your thought. Like, can you go a little explain yeah. that? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think part of that is, you know, um, I think of me being born right in the, the you know, the tail end of the civil rights movement. So much hope, right? The, the, the world is your oyster. You're going to be able to do anything, right? And then we begin to see, oh, wait, it's, it's not working. Right. And and very quickly, as you know, the 80s are coming in, we have um, the rise of gangs, of, of drugs and the drug wars. Right. We have mm-hmm. this, um, the you know, kind of Reaganomics. We have all these in this, this shift towards this conservative weight. What happened to everything? The Cold War. Right. right. <laughs> so we go from like we we I think we lurched very quickly from one crisis to another. And we saw this. So I think because of that, we can tend to be a very cynical generation. That is so true. That's why we are the Reality Bites generation. It's really true. We are. So we're like, whatever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And then- and, then and we, we can be that we way to each remote. other. Exactly. <laughs> we can be that way towards each other. We can be that way towards ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think there's some ways, you know, we talk about ourselves as like we were the most overlooked generation, the latchkey kid era, right? A lot of us have learned how to take care of our emotions and sort by really not taking care of our emotions, right? We lived with a lot of fear, but we it was during a time where we weren't encouraged to talk about that. I used to drive around when we were, when I rode around with my mom, I would look for bomb shelters, Lisa. I was what? constantly looking for bomb shelter signs because I just thought nuclear yeah. war is going to happen any minute now. I I've got to know where to go. <laughs> I, I need to know wherever we are in the city. I need to be able to say there's a bomb shelter. I, I lived with that. And I think about that now, right? About I that. lived with that. The, I never told my mom I was doing that. I never told her I was living with that fear. And I think a lot of us could have similar stories where we had these emotions, but we were living in a world that didn't know how how to deal with that. And so That's true. there was no language for it. There's no language. Even for the whole it. psychological movement, everybody has a, as a shrink didn't come to the 90s. Right. I mean, that was the 90s. We were already full grown adults at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And so we often don't know how to, we're, we're, we're such a just, you know, pull up your big girl panties, you know, generation, like that's us, uh, that we often don't know how to say it's okay to be softer. It's okay to be, feel vulnerable. It's okay to feel like I have needs in this moment and, and I can pay attention to that. So that is the the the, the chapter on, um or the, the week, I think of the weeks as the chapters on, on self-compassion. Oh, right. Um, so that um, mm-hmm. that and it's really the the third practicing self-compassion, right, right. where we yeah. uh, start talking about, you know, the, our internal language to ourselves. Right. The inner critic. Right. Um, all the ways that we try to measure ourselves up to what we're supposed to be doing. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of that because we had to learn how to be such a self-contained generation. We were also the ones who the social fabric was was sort of tearing away those old neighborhoods that took care of everybody, right? Because we were now moving out of these segregated communities. And so we didn't have that sort. And so there are ways in which we didn't learn to, because um, we had didn't have it modeled for us really, um, how to how to care for ourselves well. Welcome 
Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Now, Shaniqua, coming back to that question, what do you think is going to be the most impactful chapter for millennials, do you think? Oh, millennials. So millennials are very different because mm-hmm. they are the, this. these are my needs, <laughs> Right. I know know my needs. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Yeah. It's yeah. And I'm and I'm my first priority. And um I think for them, oh wow, let's see. This it's it seems like they kind of like when we started to realize what we were doing and not meeting our needs, we kind of overcorrected and like it, you know, it was a cult, a culture, acculturated. Um, I don't know if that's the right word. Millennials now have all of the weaknesses that we didn't have. They have it as yep. strengths. Like those are yep. their strengths. Yeah. That's deep. Okay. Yeah. And I think some of the stuff that for millennials that might be more of a challenge might be in terms of um, connecting with other people. Mm, right and so the power of relationships right and so the idea that your self-care isn't just about you Mm. but it's also about other and that you actually do need other people right so it's not just about I'm you're not just the self-contained and I'm just going to live my best life and um yeah I think maybe millennials they're also that part of that the the talk show era right like they're sort of (laughs) absolutely Everybody's a host. Everybody's a host of a talk show, whether it's, whether you're, you know, Oprah or you have your own Instagram thing, like, you know, yes, yes. 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 Okay. So which, which chapter speaks to that is going to speak to that. Yeah. I think, let's see which chapter. um, And that's a, that's a theme that comes through a a couple of ways, but I think especially when you get into the, the self-care fundamentals and the power of relationships, the healing power of, of relationships, I think Mm -hmm. are, um, will be really helpful for um, millennials and in, in recognizing, yeah, that relationships matter um, and that we carry people with us, mm. right? And people carry us. <laughs> That's exactly right. And what did you say earlier? The self-care journey from a womanist perspective is a collective journey. Yeah, You can't do it without the collective. So if yeah. you're not connected to the collective, then... Um, you're actually in many ways like short circuiting your freedom, short circuiting your, your liberation. Yeah. How about Gen Zers? Oh, Gen Z is, is, is tricky. Um, And so I have to think my son's a Gen Zer. Um, (laughs) Right, son. Yeah. (laughs) They are, they, they are more complex, but I've heard that they're much more like us than, than actually than millennials that they have us as in Gen Xers, they have a more, um, there's a groundedness to them. Yes. That is, you know, not trying to be famous. It's really not about the fame. It's truly about what works. Yeah. Um, But there's, but they lack the jadedness of the Gen Xers. Yes. Yeah. Maybe because they're young young enough that they haven't gotten that yet. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, I think for them, what might really resonate with them is the the section on um, honoring your emotions. Oh. I think I think Gen Zers are very emotional, <laughs> right? And yeah. in some ways, they've been taught to pay a lot of attention to their emotions, but sometimes they actually don't know how to contain, like 
how can I pay attention to these emotions in ways that I don't just kind of um, wallow in them, Mm -hmm. right? But again, this balance between, okay, I recognize that this is fear. And now what do I do with that, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, well, I'm afraid and that's all that matters, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, sort of the, you know, the the emotions get to um, kind of run the show Mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of being aware of our emotions and saying, okay, emotions are energy. And this is telling me something about my needs right now. And let me let me pay attention to that. And let me see how I can I can um, I don't want to use the word productive, (laughs) Because that has a lot of capitalist notions, but how are ways that I can allow this emotion to to move through me and experience it without necessarily controlling me? Um, Because I do think they tend to be maybe almost too in touch with their emotions, right? Like, yeah, I'm having a bad day and therefore it's only going to be a bad day. But what does it mean that you're having a bad day, right? What what exactly does that feel like, right? They're also that I'm feeling some kind of way generation. Yeah, right. that's, that's true. Right? <laughs> so, no, no, name that. I, what's that's the kind exactly of way? Right. Yeah. You know, wait, let me just say what I hear you naming and, you know, for Gen Zers who are listening, um, feel free to to thread at me. Don't tweet at me because I'm not going to answer you, but thread at me, thread to me and or thread to us and, and help us, you know, if we're getting it right, let us know that. Or if we're not, if we're off base, then let us know that too. But what I'm hearing you say, Dr. Shaniqua, is that, that the Gen Z generation is very much in touch with the fact that they are feeling emotions and they might even be in touch with which emotions they're feeling. But, and I, and I have, I have seen this as well, but there tends to be kind of a deification of the emotion. Yes. So the emotion takes over and becomes the arbiter of truth. Yes. When that is not actually the way that emotions work. Right. Um, Emotions can tell us what if we're in danger or if, if we're experiencing something that we like or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily supposed to be the thing that shapes or defines rather reality. It can yes. shape it, but it doesn't define it. Right. Tell, talk, yeah. Talk to that. yeah. So emotions, you know, I, I talk about them as they are partners to our reason, our logic, our embodiment, right? So that when we use them together is when they help us to make sense of the world, right? That's good. Rather than just saying, let the emotion run with it, but no, okay. So yeah, I'm I'm feeling something in my gut when I have this, and what is that telling me? But we're using that information together, right? Also recognizing that sometimes our emotions lie to us. That's right. right. That's right. So yeah, sometimes our emotions tell us we're in danger when we're not. And so it's, again, it's learning how to investigate the emotion and just approach it and say, okay. But also the fact that we have a little bit of, um, we do have a little bit of control over our emotional experience. And so I talk about cultivating particular emotions. So we're going to honor the negative emotions and be aware of them, but there are ways we can cultivate positive experience. So we don't have to let the fact that I'm having a bad day, right? I woke up feeling a certain way. That doesn't have to be the end of the story. It can be, you know what? I think I also need to incorporate some laughter into my day, some play into my day, right? I Let me do that intentionally, um, and so I think that could also be helpful. This idea that yes, emotions that are existent, they tell us information and we have influence over them. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I remember how hard that we ran during the 2020 election season 
and it felt like a massive marathon. I mean, we're coming into an election year right now, yes. right? So we're literally over halfway there to election year 2024. And it's going to be just as, if not more intense. Yes. Um, you know, it, it, you've heard it said, and I'm sure everybody's heard it said, this is the most important election of your lifetime. Well, that is true. And it's going to be the case every single election for the next several several rounds, right? Every last one is going to be the most important one because the forces that are trying to um, whittle away at our democracy are not shrinking back. They are right. fighting. And they are, they're coming back, they're coming back hard each time. So, you know, I feel like this summer and this fall are, are kind of our last opportunity to take a breath <laughs> before we like go under the water and start yeah. swimming hard, you know, or maybe another, uh, all these analogies start running, but how do we enter into the 2024 election season in a way that doesn't burn us out. Cause I honestly feel like I got burned out in 2024. Yeah. Like I yeah. finished that marathon and I think it took me a whole year to even get up off the couch. Wow. After that. It was so hard. How do we pace ourselves? Yeah. So I think first is the awareness that we're going into the difficult season, right? Um, yes. I have a, I have a, one of the, the chapters is anticipate the hard. Yeah. I right. Oh so um, recognizing when there are hard seasons so an election season is a hard one. And we know it's not going to wait until 2024, right? It'll be kicking up. I mean, it's starting to kick starting up now, now, right? It's starting yes. now. And every, every election cycle, it starts sooner, right? So recognizing it's coming, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be an onslaught. Um, so when we begin to recognize it's coming, then we say, okay, what am I going to need, right? What am I going to need to get through this season? How is this going to impact how I operate each day, right? And so for folks who do a lot of political organizing, it may mean you know you have less time to prepare meals. So then how do I make sure that I'm going to get healthy meals during a season when I have less time to maybe grocery shop or prep, right? So identifying those resources, right? Um, also, where can I build in breaks? Build them in now. Build them in now. Don't That's wait good. and say, I'm going to wait till I get to the point where I need it. No, just build it in, right? Um, and and, and then take of, them, actually do and it. And then take them, right? <laughs> Yes. Um, I'm the kind of person who builds it in and then doesn't do it, right? Right, so, but to build it in yeah. and do it. And, and this is critical to our organizing and, and activism because it actually helps to reinforce the idea that we are part of a collective movement, that the movements are not about us, right? So if we built in, I've got a retreat that I'm going to in the midst of this busy season and I'm going to go on retreat. And guess what? The world keeps spinning. The work keeps moving forward because we all need to be able to take turns, mm. right? And this is the other part of the collective act, you know, self-care, especially for activists. The idea is that, you know, you're, you're going to tap out. I'm going to step in. And yeah. then eventually you're going to come back in and somebody else is going to tap out for a while, right? But we're going right. to keep the work going because it's not just individual work. So I think Looking forward to that and knowing what is it that you need? No, paying attention. How did it affect you last time? Hmm. What did you give up? What did you lose? Right? What 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 were your self-care disciplines that just disappeared? And what was the impact of that? 
Know what you need and then say, okay, what supports do I need? What accountability partners do I need? Who's going to be checking in with me to make sure that I'm doing what I need to be doing? How do I need to structure my life so that I can I can do that work, right? Um, when I'm traveling, can I still exercise? Right. Can I still what is it? What does it take for me to be able to meditate and to pray in the midst of these busy seasons? Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are some of the ways that we begin to think about it before it's coming, because, you know, it's coming. Mm -hmm. And then also in the the aftermath, how will you how will you recuperate? So Mm -hmm. sometimes I have times like especially, you know, the academic year is predictable. I know what my hard times are going to be. There are times where, yeah, I'm going to, some self-care stuff is just going to get put to the side. I'm going to have to do it to get through. What is the point at which I recover? Right. And so I say, okay, so I'm going to get through the, I'm going to get through commencement. The week after commencement, I take a break. Right. And so sometimes it's just anticipating where it's coming and building in recovery time after that, as opposed to just running on to to the next thing. That's so good. And I I mean, I love that particularly. I mean, look, everybody here on Freedom Road today, your homework is to go take a look at your calendar going into the fall. And for those of you who are like me, who are a little bit like, you know, you're already planning into 2024, go take a look at your calendar in 2024. And now, right now, today, think about when you can take your vacations in 2024. Yes. Think about when you can do your your retreats of silence, if that is something that you do. I know that I, I, I aspire to that every year and next year I'm going to do it. Actually, this year I'm going to do it. I mean, going into the, and maybe even this summer I'll do it, but like, what's your rhythm of life going to be? Rhythm it in now, put that stuff in as the pillars, right? Is that Yes. That's really what it is. Yes, absolutely. It's absolutely. And use your count, you know, for me, because I use my calendar. So block out times, right? Mm -hmm. And just put in there now that you're not available. Because if you don't block it out, you'll just start scheduling things into it. You will you know, if you just say, I'm going to take that third week of June, but you don't block it on the calendar, then next thing you know, you're adding things into it and the whole week is blown, right? So yeah, yeah, go ahead and just block the time out now. You can also do that weekly, right? Like your um, you know, I've, I've done it before where like my gym time was in the schedule, my writing time it's in the schedule. Yes, right? I have raised where I know this is my time and I put it in there because otherwise I'll stick a doctor's appointment in there. I'll stick a meeting in there. Right. But so then protect that time and figure out ways that you can do that. That's also a way that you can bring other people in your life along with you because you can prepare them for it. I get moms often asking, how do I do this with young kids? I say, bring them with you, help them be your advocates, right? So mommy really needs to take this time at this hour. I'm supposed to be doing this thing. Can you make sure that I'm doing it? Right. Kids love that, right? (laughs) They want to boss adults around. They want to say, mommy, you're supposed to be doing this, right? I love that. I love it. And it, it, it literally is, again, bringing the collective, making yes. it a collective effort. Yeah. Okay. So last question. I can imagine, this is actually going back to what I said earlier um, in our conversation. I can imagine churches using Sacred Self-Care, your book, as a basic foundational book for discipleship. That is my goal for your book, oh, that wow. it would become one of those books that, you know, just like Rule of Life or 
um, I don't know, you know, you choose it. Dis, dis, um, dis, um, the spiritual disciplines yes. or fosters prayer that yeah. they would be using sacred self-care as a basic book for discipleship, not just black folk, everybody, right? So everybody. Yeah. And I love that because you actually really have written it toward everybody as a womanist, you would do that. So I want to know, how do you hope it will be used? I think in very many of the same ways. I'm I'm almost scared to claim that as a hope for myself. But you got to put it more, out there. Yeah. The more I wrote this book, the more I thought this is sort of a, a book on how to be a human. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> right. How to be a human, especially in terms of the Christian life. Um, mm -hmm. I do. I want it to transform congregations. I want it to, to transform um, clergy, hmm. right? Um, I, I teach, I teach seminary students about self-care and I always tell them, take your congregations with you. When they say, there's no way I'm going to have time for this. And I say, it's because you're not teaching the people to do it for themselves. If you teach the people to do it for themselves, they will support you doing it for yourself, yeah, right? And so, so I think, yeah, my hope is that yes, this will be part of um Christian life. I I think I think every book I write, every time I write a book, I'm like, this is the, the most important one. But in many ways, I feel like this is the most important one. The thing I say to myself that I haven't said out loud to other people is I write this book to save lives. Ooh. Yes. Yeah. And that's really, that's really what I want it to do. So from um, whether it's congregational pastors, it's the members of congregations, um, activists, right? Um, I, I want this book to save lives. And I think that if we learn to handle ourselves well and care for ourselves in each other's selves well, yeah. I think it could be transformational in our world. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think to me, a lot of this is the heart of the gospel. And increasingly, I think it is the heart of what Christian discipleship ought to be about, right? Not so much, you know, who can do what and who can't do what, and, but really what does, what does life, my day-to-day -day life look like if I accept that I am created in the image of God and so are you. Yes. Wow. Right. Yeah. Good. What does that look like? Wow. You know, can I just say that, I mean, one of the reasons why the word discipleship floated to the top for me is that, you know, in my evangelical world experience, like discipleship was a real thing. People actually asked people to Hey, I would like to disciple you. Would you be up for being discipled? In other words, mentored, but it's even more intense, right? It's like a, yeah. it's like a coming alongside living, living life with somebody and passing on all the goods that you have gotten for them so that they won't have to learn the hard way, the way that you learned, and they'll be able to kind of build from that and pass on to the next person discipling. Right. And I think that that's a lost art. I don't, I don't see a lot of churches doing a lot of discipleship Yeah. Um, right now. We do a lot of fill in the blanks. We do a lot of worship coming around and singing the Hillsong, you know, mm -hmm. the songs and <clears throat> all of that going to concerts. We could do a lot of, even a lot of protesting, quite honestly, you know, like quote justice churches, but I'm not really sure 
how many of us of our churches, and this is across the line, not just evangelical, everybody, how many of us are actually taking the time to, um, to instruct the next generations coming up in the yeah. wisdom that the previous generations have gleaned in how to set boundaries yeah. that are healthy yeah. in how to honor your emotions and at the same time, not be ruled by them. Right. Yeah. Um, in, uh, in, in all of these things that you talk about and how to have what I used to call, and I got from, I can't remember the author, but just, I'll just say a fun day, like how to have a day that is just fun and actually see that as a part of the living out of the faith. Yes. These are things that were given to me in the context of being discipled. Wow. And as I think about younger generations, I am flabbergasted by how many leaders even today that I meet who have never been discipled. They've never had anybody walk alongside them and say, this is how, this is how we live the life, um, the, the, the Jesus way in a way that is healthy. And so that's why I appreciate your book so much. I just feel like, my God, in one book form, what you really have done is you have given kind of the basics of this is how we live the Jesus way. Thank you so much. That's my hope. That's my hope. Yeah. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wherever our guests are laying their head that night. This episode was engineered, edited, and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media and executive produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about us from our website, freedomroad.us, and stay in the know by signing up for our updates, which are on Substack. Everybody say Substack. <laughs> we promise that we won't flood your inbox, but we do send out updates and newsletters and really fabulous content, quite honestly, um, at least a couple of times a month. And so we invite you to listen to Freedom Road podcast again and join the conversation on Freedom Road. And if you are a paid Substack subscriber or a patron on Patreon, then you have a very special treat. We have a backstage conversation with Dr. Shaniqua coming up. There is a truth that can heal us if we let it. Reparation to restore and make it right.